Hey everybody, welcome back to another episode of the Catholic Talk Show. Today we're going to be talking about the biblical proof for the seven sacraments. Yeah, we're going to dig into scripture and find the justification for the teaching of each of the seven Catholic sacraments. That's right. And St. Thomas Aquinas said something very interesting. In a false person, sacraments do not produce any effect. So let's take a good, long, hard look at the scriptures because they proclaim the truth and in the truth, our hearts will be set free so that the sacraments will have an effect in us. We're back in the studio, guys. Good to see you. How's it going? Great to be with you guys. Looking forward to this episode. I like biblical proofs because you know Ryan's going to be like proving things and telling you if you don't believe it, you're stupid. I love it. These are the best types of episodes where Ryan Shield is at his finest. Yeah. Well, it's not me at my finest. I'm only recounting work that is done by people much smarter than myself who have gotten this all figured out long before I was born or even thought of. Which makes you chop liver. And what about the mind of St. Thomas Aquinas, which is clearly one of the greatest minds of the church? That that quote is really super interesting. Like that the if if a false person in in a false person, sacraments do not produce any effect. Like that's really deep. Well, even even think about like the way that we look at our own personal sinfulness. We know that there is there is no effect within us when we have mortal sin on our soul. Am I about to argue with Aquinas? Are you? Well, wouldn't uh, a false person, wouldn't taking the Eucharist have an effect, albeit in a negative one? A negative effect. Mm. Wow. Tommy, negative you're slipping, bro. Well, this Tommy. is my application of St. Thomas Aquinas, so I'm going to defend him and say I'm maybe sure he's, he's right. talking about I'm sure he's is right. this personal sure revelation. Yes. Is this personal revelation here? <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> but no, think about that. Like, in a false person, sacraments do not produce any effect. Well, sacraments have such an immense effect on us, but our sinfulness... And our and our openness or our lack thereof to God's grace operative within us is definitely how we need to one look at the truth that comes from the scriptures, but also look at the truth of our own lives and our own sinfulness if we want the sacraments to produce something good inside of us. Mm. And what do the sacraments do? But it brings us together. It govern us governs us in unity and the practice of our faith from baptism all the way through to the anointing of the sick and confirmation, matrimony, all of these different sacraments that we're about to get into produce a communal effect. And that's exactly what Jesus reveals in the scripture saying that the father desires us to be one. And then in that same light, I believe it's John 18. He talks about, you know, consecrate them in the truth. You know, mm-hmm. we need to look at ourselves truthfully, we need to look at the scriptures truthfully, and we need to see what the church actually teaches about sacraments, because sometimes the church can be misrepresented and say, oh, the church invented and sacraments. That's exactly why I wanted to do this episode, because you'll see so often that say, well, the church, well, the Catholic church, this is just man-made traditions, and all you need to do is confess the Lord as your Savior, and you're saved, and the sacraments are unnecessary man-made traditions. And that's Literally not true. The sacraments are specifically things that our Lord commanded us to do. They're not even suggestions. They are things that he said that we must do, right? So I wanted to do this so that we can 
use scripture in a very clear way to show exactly the scriptural justification for each of the sacraments. Yeah, the sacraments are very, very interesting and very powerful and have an effect. If they didn't have an effect, I mean, it would have fallen out of the practice of of the church a long time ago. But Jesus himself attended to these sacraments. He commissioned his apostles to do these sacraments. He, you know, think even just marriage, that he attended marriage between a husband and a wife and made something that ran out fruitful you know, in respect to the, in respect to the one, the dynamic attendance of Jesus in the sacramental life of the church at its very foundational level and his attention to it shows us, Hey, there's something to be said here. Absolutely. So we've got a lot to talk about. We do. Now, before we get into those, uh, why don't you tell everyone where they could find out more about us? I'd be happy to. Thank you. Before we get started, I just want to encourage you hit the subscribe button, click the little bell. Every time we shoot a video, it'll populate in your feed and YouTube. We're on a lot of different podcasting efforts, uh, you know, just for people to listen in. So check out CatholicTalkShow.com. There you'll see every way to listen in as well. Big thank you to our patrons. If you want to financially support the show, please go to Patreon.com forward slash The Catholic Talk Show. You'll see every way that you can support us. we got some awesome gear and some specialized content. So check that out today. All right. Thank you, Padre. Very well. Uh, So let's, I guess... Take these in a kind of a sensical order, but first let's talk about baptism. Now, we all know that baptism is in multiple places in the Bible. I don't think there's any real um, contention over whether or not baptism is a necessary sacrament within the church. And most denominations actually practice baptism Uh, in greater respect. I don't know if I was a single Christian denomination, no matter how far afield from the church, that doesn't. Mm -hmm. But I think the biggest thing that I'll notice... Um, in maybe anti-Catholic apologists, is the Trinitarian formula and what is the proper baptismal formula. So we all know that the, 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 the way that Catholics perform the sacrament of baptism is, it comes from Matthew 28, go therefore and make disciples of all nations, and baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Those were Jesus' direct words on how we, his followers, are to baptize. But I don't know if it's just specifically to be contrarian, but you'll see a lot of like Pentecostals and fundamentalists who will only use the baptismal, I don't even want to call it a formula, but the baptismal concepts of, the, of Acts 2.38. And I'm sure that some of them are going to be watching, hey guys, I, but here's why we're talking about it, that in, in Acts 2.38, it says, go and every one of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. Okay, and that's how they baptize. And they say that doing it in any other way is, a, is an invention of the Romish Popish Church, which I never understood. I know? never heard that. Yeah. Oh, yeah, that's, it's, no, Acts 2.38, that's how you are supposed to baptize. In the name of Jesus Christ, I baptize you. That's what they mm-hmm. do. But that doesn't make any sense to me in light of Matthew 28, where it says, go and baptize in all the nations. And that's also one of the great Trinitarian proofs as well, mm-hmm. which I think a lot of fundamentalists have maybe different ideas of the Trinity, so they don't want to mention that. Mm-hmm. And they don't even move close to that type of theological structure, yeah. something that the church has enjoyed in greater part for the yeah. the length of its days, really. Mm-hmm. And Nicaea, Nicaea really spent a lot of time in that in that field of work as well, theologically. And, you know, certainly to 
consider that our Trinitarian formula and the Trinitarian formula of the greater denominations of Christianity are doing it wrong because this is an invention of a papist Roman practice is kind of mind boggling because it's right there in the scriptures. Right. It's, yeah. it's entirely scriptural. But then so is I baptize, baptize people in the name of Jesus is there too. See, but no, so, but I mean, but, like I can see how, I mean, how other if, practices if, if can you, take place. If you, if you are, if you're reading scripture for the purpose of denying the Roman Catholic, whatever faith we're calling it today, that that's not how you read scripture, yeah. right? I get that, mm-hmm. but 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 it does say that there. So I, I don't know if you're if you're reading scripture and you're ascertaining it from that particular passage as such, and saying the other one doesn't count because of the Roman Church. I don't. It's not really an argument there. Yeah, but that's the but that's you're right. That's a really good insight that they are reading scripture trying to find ways that they can counter it and just be contrarian. Yeah, and it, and and I get it. But you see here that Peter is preaching saying, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, uh, for the forgiveness of and your sins. And then Jesus is saying something. But he's <laughs> preaching, saying, here's the the thing you need to do. Yeah. You need to repent and be baptized in the name of Jesus, for, for because that is who we do all things in, gotcha. in the name of. Yeah. But Jesus himself, when he gave the command to go and baptize, gave the proper Trinitarian formula. And that... That is where where we as a church hang our hats is mm-hmm. on his commandment. And I have and a hard time. Great, the Great Commission is everything yeah. when it when it comes down to Catholics. Yeah. Because when Jesus says, "Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe what I have commanded you. Behold, I am with you always, even until the end of the age." That is the promise of the Holy Spirit. Yeah. That is the commissioning of mm-hmm. the of it's the apostolic time. church yeah. and how he is going to set up succession, go and make disciples of all nations. The structures of the Catholic Church were founded upon this commission. So Matthew mm. 28 for Catholics is really one of yeah. the most important chapters of scriptures to realize before Jesus ascends into heaven, this is after his resurrection. He is establishing the sacramental church by the lineage of of his commission. And that has way more weight than what Peter's saying in Acts. I mean, he's saying in the name of Jesus, he's saying that, uh, you know, but but it's almost like, you know, we would be doing this show in the name of Jesus. Mm -hmm. Right, right? exactly. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And every liturgy we celebrate is... is, And every act that we should be doing should be in the name of Jesus. In the name of Jesus. And the priest celebrates in persona Jesus, in persona Christi, right? It's kind of like getting the recipe wrong for the bunk cake, you know? Yeah. Yeah, and and this is this is not to you know I'm not uh, trying to point the finger. Yeah, no, and we we never want to do that. So yeah, if you're non-Catholic or somebody who is, is listening to this to try to in good faith, understand what Catholics actually believe or what our scriptural justification for our beliefs is, you know, know that we're not just trying to absolutely tell you that everything you're doing is wrong. What we're trying to say is here's why we believe, why it is sound doctrine, why it is sound logically, so that maybe we can move closer together in our beliefs and find the commonality. So, you know, if baptism is regarded, you know, even by Pentecostals or other traditions that baptize in the name of Jesus or baptize in the Trinitarian formula, that's kind of a practice by everybody. So what would you think is our sacraments that clearly, you know, this this sacrament is by far not 
you know, held up to be scriptural. This is a pure invention of the Catholic church. You know, what's the perception out there? I have the feeling you're going to tell us. Yeah. Well, I mean, I'm curious to find out what you guys think. Uh, because I do hear this, I do hear this all the time, especially in RCIA classes. Or, I would say the ones that that non-Catholics would have the most problem with are either Eucharist or confession. Yeah, yeah, and I would say confession by far yeah. is the number one. That's mm-hmm. why we took the time to do a whole episode on yeah. just on just on scriptural basis because yeah. well, we didn't do a, scr- we didn't do a scriptural, scriptural basis. basis. We talked we, about confession. I'll put that link. There. Yeah, we did. It. We we cover a lot of ground scripturally, but I, I don't did. think we did. But th- it this like is going to be a lab. this is going to be a, a you know a deep di- a deep dive into this. Yeah, but yeah, without a doubt, in recollection, I would say confession is the number one thing that people bring up. And I think it's cultural. I don't think people really look at the scripture associated with confession and the forgiveness of sins and how Jesus established that in his church, breathing upon the apostles, giving them the authority over every unclean spirit. Yeah, I think confession is popular among, you know, our brothers and sisters in Christ of other denominations. But I don't think that I don't think a lot of those people even know what confirmation is Mm -hmm. or. You know what the Eucharist is. Confirmation I mean, every, may be another one. That's I mean, a good like, point. Or even anointing of the sick. It's like, what are you doing? Why are you anointing the sick? So we're going to get to each one of those. Mm-hmm. So let's yeah. let's let's talk about confession since we brought that up. Now, in the episode we did on confession, we talked about probably the clearest and, and the best biblical proof for uh, the 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 sacrament of penance, which is John twenty twenty one mm-hmm. to twenty three, and again, <clears throat> Jesus said to them, "Peace be with you, as the Father sent me, so I send you." And when he said this, he breathed on them and said to them, Receive the Holy Spirit, whose sins you forgive are forgiven, and those whose sins you retain are retained. It just really does not get any clearer that Jesus is giving the ability to forgive the sins of others so that he was telling them, if someone comes up to Peter or John or James or Andrew and says, Hey, this is what I did. They have the power and the exact way on how to do it. It's so clear. It's so scriptural. It yeah. is so biblical. Tell your sins to another man. Why would Jesus give them the power to forgive sins if no one should ever tell them their sins? It defies logic. So again, if you're listening to this, be open-minded on this. Why would Jesus give them the ability to forgive sins if no one was supposed to tell them their sins? It, it's, yeah. it makes no sense. That's the car before the horse. Exactly. And, yeah. James chapter 5, 16, therefore confess your sins to each other and pray for each other so that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person is powerful and effective. Luke 13, 3. No, I say to you, but unless you shall do penance, penance, you shall all likewise perish. You know, all of these things are really interesting. Uh, Ezekiel, Old Testament, chapter 18, verse 21. But if the wicked do penance for all his sins, which he hath committed, and keep all my commandments, and do judgment and justice, living he shall live and shall not die. You know, and, and to see that even in the Old Testament, and then the wisdom literature, Proverbs 28, 13, whoever conceals their sins does not prosper. Wow. Right. This is Old Testament stuff. Yeah. But the one who confesses and renounces them finds mercy. So Jesus, from the Old Testament now in the New Testament, is establishing an order in his church for his apostles and their successors and the fullness of the priesthood active and alive with this authority 
truly ministering so that what is talked about in the Old Testament, what was just shared in Proverbs, can be realized in our life in an effective way in the ministry of the priesthood. Yeah. Why would, exactly what you said, Shield, why would Jesus do this if he didn't intend for us to confess right. and then to receive forgiveness? Yeah, and he like <clears throat> he breathed on them too. Yeah. You know, I mean, that's kind of like... Yeah, it's kind of important. Yeah, he's, you know, he's like breathing receive the Holy Spirit. The yeah, receive the Holy Spirit. That I mean, that's Ruach a, Elohim, like the yeah, the only the, other time in Scripture that we hear about the breath of God is in creation, mm-hmm. when when God breathed into the nostrils of mm-hmm. Adam, yeah. Adam from the earth, he formed and man. The Holy Spirit, the Lord, the Giver of life. It's like Jesus is recreating our humanity yeah. in that single breath, and he's ushering it in for. Weakened humanity, concupiscent humanity, to participate in this recreation, if you will. So, again, you know, I think a lot of people have problems with confession because it takes a lot of pride. Well, it's very easy. Well, I confess my sins to God. Well, it takes a a level of pride to do that, but it takes a different level of pride or maybe a more, uh, maybe for a fallen person, a harder one to commit or to confess a sin face-to-face with someone. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Like, well, yeah, I feel I could be judged by God, but no one else can judge me. Well, you know, priest's not judging you. The priest mm-hmm. is acting in the capacity that Jesus gave him scripturally. So, And uh, if you haven't if you haven't listened in to our episode on confession, definitely listen yeah. in to it. And if you're sitting out there thinking, oh, I don't want to go face-to-face with my priest, it's okay. There is, there, you know, anonymity is written into the sacrament. You can go behind the screen. Um, but yes, absolutely. You know, like it takes a level of realizing this is a safe place for me to be Mm -hmm. in this community that Jesus founded is a place where I'm loved, Mm -hmm. where I will overcome my own sinfulness and my own view of self rooted in shame and guilt and enter into freedom. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And I also think it's important too, to distinguish, you know, if, if you do confess your sins to another person, I mean, it was, it was in scripture. So there probably were instances where, you know, people would confess their sins as a community before bringing it to a priest or Mm -hmm. there's all the other one where it's like, you know, if you disagree with somebody, you go somewhere, you take it, you know, you take it, you know, to uh, an elder. Um, But, you know, there's something uh, about God's mercy, and I think you mentioned it in the Ruah and the breath that that happens during a sacrament where God literally works in and through the church, in and through the sacrament to breathe new life into you, Mm -hmm. right? And it's not the new life you have for being forgiven, you know, you know. Your sins up to that point. Your sins up to that point. Yeah. And and so like, but it's, there is something that transpires transcendently in your soul that God is literally coming into your heart and touching your heart, right. And renewing you. I mean, Mm -hmm. there's a, you know, obviously we're all, we're all forgiven. If we ask Christ to be forgiven, you know, even if you're not a Catholic, you know, you can be forgiven. You amend your life, you know, things like that. But I, there's something in the sacrament of confession that's very special. It's very special. It's very powerful, Mm -hmm. you know? Mm -hmm. So I think another sacrament that non-Catholics probably misunderstand or probably don't even know about or care about, besides some of the more, you know, high Protestant churches, is the uh, sacrament of confirmation. Mm -hmm. But again, we are talking about the Holy Spirit and the Ruah and the breath, right? The sacrament of confirmation is very much tied to the Holy Spirit and the laying on of hands. It's it's the the apostolic sacrament. Mm -hmm. You know, it's the one that 
from an unbroken succession, hand to hand to hand to hand of laying on of hands, from that breath that Jesus blew onto the apostles and then passed down by that anointing and by that confirmation that the Holy Spirit has been passed on directly from the very beginning of the church, from Jesus to the apostles to us today. Now, if we look at uh, Acts 8, 14 to 17, you'll see it says, Now when the apostles in Jerusalem heard that Samaria had accepted the word of God, they sent them Peter and John, who went down and prayed for them, that they might receive the Holy Spirit, for it had not yet fallen upon them. So they've received the word of God, right? Mm -hmm. They've presumably been baptized, um, for not have... the for it had not yet fallen upon them. They had only been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. Then they laid hands on them and they received the Spirit. See, that's why confirmation comes after baptism. Mm -hmm. It's the confirmation of the apostolic character and the passing on of the Holy Spirit, mm -hmm. right? That's a, you know, when I was reading this, I don't think I'd ever really researched yeah. confirmation and just how powerful. But then the concept that it is the sacrament of the apostolic nature of the church really struck me that confirmation is way more important, number one, than the church even teaches or practices, but then I guess non-Catholics consider, mm -hmm. you know? Mm -hmm. to, to think about John 20, 22, and when he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, receive the Holy Spirit. Like this action, receive the Holy Spirit. This action of Jesus on the mountaintop commissioning the apostles. Behold, I will be with you always, even until the end of the age. Jesus's promise of accompaniment is by the power of the Holy Spirit. And when we celebrate confirmation, yet yeah, there's a sense of intellectually, this is what I believe, and I'm, I'm confirmed in, in that. But there's something even more powerful as it relates to what you were saying, Sheil, that there's a sense of laying on of hands and being signed, being sealed with this gift in this succession of what Jesus instituted and commissioned. Yeah. And when you look at the word confirmed, con firma, firma is, is signed, con is with, that we're going to be signed with the Holy Spirit. Mm -hmm. And you, and then you connect that to the the descent of the tongues on fire, mm -hmm. you know, and yeah. the and the gift of the Holy Spirit. So there's so much to consider when when you know how the apostles were confirmed. What was the birth of the church? What what are we when we are fully alive as Catholics, mm -hmm. animated by the Holy Spirit in this type of exchange that's happening in the sacraments of the church? Like that is, that's just so powerful that God wants us to receive his Holy Spirit. Yeah, there's, an, there's another great biblical verse on this. And again, it shows that nature of why the bishops come to and yeah. do, do the confirmation because the apostles were the first bishops. They were, the, that's their function to pass on these spiritual gifts that Christ gave and left to us. Uh, and this is Acts 19, three to six. He said, how were you baptized? They replied, with the baptism of John. Paul then said, John baptized with a baptism of repentance, telling the people to believe in the one who is to come after him, that is, in Jesus. When they, said, when they heard this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. And when Paul laid his hands on them, the Holy Spirit came upon them and they spoke in tongues and prophesied. Now, Protestant communities or Pentecostals love this verse because of the speaking in tongues and the yep. Holy Spirit. 
But they're missing the whole idea of the laying on of hands being an unbroken line of succession from the apostles That's to today. That's a big deal. It's a it big is. deal. And yeah. for a priest, uh, speaking as a priest, wow. when you're kneeling there and the brothers are coming out and like 70, 80 priests, uh, you know, for, for my ordination, I had a, around that with three bishops that all laid their hands on me. Yeah incredible experience just yeah. overwhelming experience of something being passed on to me in the lineage of the presbyterate that is in one of the oldest dioceses in, in the in the country and you know the beautiful history of saint augustine that feeling that 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 pressing on that signing that's being passed down to me that's ordination. That's holy orders. Yeah. And we're going to get into holy orders in a little I, bit. I think it's actually a good caveat because the apostles are actually transmitting that through. And it's why, so that's why it's not being done by, by priests. That's why. Right. So, is, yeah. So we can jump right into holy orders because I think it is very much very similar that it is yeah. that passing on of that apostolic nature from Peter, Paul, and, uh, you know, James, John, Andrew, all the apostles that was given to them directly by Jesus Christ has been passed down in an unbroken line since Pentecost, since the, you know, Last Supper, right? There is, it's unbroken. There's no rupture with the gift of Christ. So in the same way that confirmation is this sealing with the Holy Spirit in the authority of the apostolic church, um, with the Holy Spirit through confirmation, the same thing with holy orders, right? Is that it has been passed down from bishop to bishop to the priests um, that they consecrate and ordain. Um, and that's one of the really, I think, the great biblical proofs for the Catholic Church is that it is an unbroken succession. The person who laid hand, who who performed your ordination? So the the presider was Bishop Estevez, okay. you know, so he was he was the uh the principal. Um, bishop to ordain yeah. me. And then I had Bishop Gallione here uh, concelebrating with Bishop Snyder. Um, bishop Two Snyder, yeah, Bishop Snyder confirmed me. Bishop Gallione yeah. received me and affiliated me in the diocese yeah. and guided me through formation. And then Bishop Estevez installed me as a lector as an auxiliary bishop of Miami. And then he was named Bishop of St. Augustine. And then ordained me a priest, mm -hmm. which was just a wonderful yeah. experience of, of that type of passing on. Yeah, it's amazing lineage when you think about it. I mean, a lot mm -hmm. of people in England are like, you know, the king of England, and then you've got, you know, Queen Elizabeth, and then the princes and all that. Mm -hmm. It's like the lineage of the Catholic Church goes back yeah. to Jesus yeah, himself. And, and, my, and my diaconate ordination was by Bishop Barbarito, and Barbarito was down in, in uh, Palm Beach, Palm Beach yeah. and Barbarito and Snyder you know, lived like blocks away in the city in Manhattan. And that's where my whole family's from. So it was just like these beautiful little connections yeah. and, and experiences. Uh, like, so like, I'm, just, I'm looking up Bishop Estevez's, you know, consecration lineage, right? Well, he was consecrated bishop by Bishop Thomas Olmsted. Uh, and then Thomas Olmsted was by, you know, uh, Bishop Gerber. And Bishop Gerber, and this is you can do this with any bishop. Bishop Gerber was consecrated by uh, Hannafin, and Hannafin, and they keep going back and back and back and back, and eventually you follow that far enough back, like in your family tree, it's Peter or John or James, right? Yeah. And and everybody's so fascinated about Ancestry.com, like, right? This is this is fascinating. Yeah, there's records of all this. Now mm -hmm. I I think, you know, you could look at just about any bishop alive today and trace 
at the bare minimum, their lineage of consecration back to at least the 1300s. Yeah. Any bishop alive today can go back that far, some even further, right? Yep. Really cool stuff. But then, so holy orders, though, I think another thing that's important is, you know, it, in that it is the other remaining ones who are the ones choosing those people to be accepted into the holy orders. And there's a, there's, you know, scriptural proof of that, right? Uh, Acts 6, right? And you see a lot of these coming in from the book of Acts, right? Which is, you know, a lot of Pentecostal and Protestant communities really base what they do on Acts. But then when you look at it, the Catholic Church is very, very adherent to it. So Acts 6, 3 to 6. Brothers, select from you seven reputable men filled with the spirit and wisdom who we shall appoint for this task, right? And they, you know, then they go on to talk about Stephen and Philip and Prochorius and uh, Nicanor and Tim, uh, Timon and... Uh, you know, all these other ones. And then they say, they presented these men to the apostles who prayed and laid hands on them. This is the bishops making priests or deacons, right? Yeah. This is holy orders right there in the in scripture. And there's even a bishop being created, right? In, in Acts 2 as well. Right. right? Uh, so in Acts 13, they say, while they're worshiping uh, the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, set them apart for me, Barnabas and Saul, for the work to which I have called them. Then completing their fasting and prayers, they laid hands on them and set them off. I mean, mm -hmm. this is bishops yeah. who are directly from Jesus, consecrating priests by discerning, choosing, calling, laying on of hands, and giving a task and a mission in mm -hmm. the priesthood of Jesus Christ. And this is without even touching on the fact that anointing with oils mm -hmm. from baptism to confirmation to holy orders to the anointing of the sick, which we're about to get into here in a second, you know, the use of oil and, and being set apart from Exodus all the way through the old Testament and the practices of Judaism that then ushered into the practice of Catholicism in Christianity, oils were used in sacred fashion. So chrism becomes that spiced oil that is related to the chrismation of the Holy Spirit that we've been talking about in relation to confirmation, exercising fully our communion with Christ, being courageous and going out into the darkness of the world with the light as Jesus is, has expressed. So that is just absolutely important. We should actually do a show on the use of oil in relationship to the sacred and from the Old Testament to the New Testament and Certainly. Passover. So let's not get too deep into that, but, but I did that's make important one more too. point though on the, so we're talking holy orders now. I don't think we made the clarification. That is the priesthood, right? Now you'll see a lot of times that <clears throat> Protestants or non-believers say, well, Jesus Christ didn't intend for there to be priests. He intended there to be a personal relationship with their savior and the created man, which is you. Um, but if you look again at scripture and the Catholic church isn't, incredibly scriptural, right? And that's why I invite anybody who's not Catholic or watching this to, you know, find out what we think to consider that and understand that we are very scriptural at our very, very core. But if you look at what Jesus says, when he says, do this in remembrance of me, do you hear it? Right? Yeah. But the Greek word used there for do this has the sense of offer this, right? In the sense of a priestly offering. offering. Right, not just a hey, do this. Hey, you know, it's a, this is a nice thing for you to do, not do, but offer. So, 
there is the 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 uh, sacerdotal nature of the mm-hmm. commandment. Not just do this in a fashion because it's a thing to be done, but offer it in the way of the priesthood of Jesus Christ, the priesthood of Melchizedek, and the new covenant. Right? Yeah. Jesus did at mm. the Last Supper intend to find a priesthood. Not say, he did not say get together and eat this bread in memory of me, which you should do every time you eat a meal. It's great, mm-hmm. but there was a intent of offer of sacrificial priestly offering in the commandment at the Last Supper. And what's associated with it is purpose. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Purpose. So Thank it, you. It, it, and that's exactly what you're being purposed now in relationship to your communion with Christ. Yeah. So mission is a part of that. Yep. Now, I think probably the easiest and the clearest one, and I don't think anyone has a real problem with it, is the anointing of the sick, right? Mm-hmm. But again, just to continue the theme, that the anointing of the sick is, and this is, Again, with that oil, that laying on of hands, that con- that continuity from Jesus's breath to the apostles to us today, and that's James five fourteen to fifteen. Now, let me say, from just from memory, from the the sacramental rite of anointing. Okay, you say how what your right is, and I'll say how close the Bible. Verse okay, is yeah, to and it. this is this is the right. Uh, from this mem- is this is right from memory. Okay. Now, I don't have a photographic memory like this guy, but uh, this is it's going to be close from the it's letter of Saint James. Latin. Are there, people, are there people sick among you? Let them send for the priests of the church and let the priests pray over them, anointing them with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer of faith will save the sick persons and the Lord will raise them up. The Lord, we have gathered here in your name and we ask you to be among us to watch over our brother, Ryan. Um, you know, so that's kind of the the formula up wow. until the the naming of Is the that scripture. The so when you first cited it was James. It's in part from scripture, and then the administration then goes to the person that you were yeah, yeah, are James ministering. Yeah, James is very specific about that. Well, mm-hmm. this what you said was almost word for word, and it's probably just a translation variation. Sounds like you've been doing some of that. Yeah, I've James five fourteen. Is any among you sick? He should summon the presbyters of the church, and they should pray over and anoint him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer of the faith will save the sick person, and the Lord will raise him up. If he has committed any sins, he will be forgiven. forgiven. That's there, too. That's there. Sorry. Oh, no, you're See, out you of anointing people. Dummy, you put me out of the press. I'm sorry, man. No, that was impressive. Got, got, that's what you get your book for. I got cameras in front. I do have the yeah. book. Right. I've got two books, actually. Yeah. One in Spanish. He's out there English. anointing people, but not forgiving their sins. What, no. what are you doing, Padre? <laughs> it's all the pressure. Our, all of our cameras, are you guys, be, uh, put me to the test, sure. man. Is that is that why we, when he meant prayers of the faithful, is he meaning, you know, from Mass, we do the prayers yeah. of the faithful? Yeah. I mean, so we remember the sick every time we pray the prayers of the faithful. I mean, yeah. Wow. Mm-hmm. So again, I don't think there's anything anybody that has a real problem with it. But again, scriptural and apostolic in nature been done since the beginning of the church. Yeah. In the Book of Acts until this day, virtually unchanged except for the semantics of the development of language. Yeah, I don't want to detour too much, but I mean, everybody has to realize that the the church was living for hundreds of years before the scriptural canon was brought in. That there Certainly. was there were so many activities among these communities that were very explicitly performed, mm-hmm. right? That began to become aggregated during you know the time where the canon of scripture was brought together. So even though we're reading a scripture, it might be one little thing where you're like, oh, you know, that's not you know right, or it's just one way of reading. It's like, no, they're mentioning this because this went on in all the communities. They were of one heart and mm-hmm. mind, you know. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. No, it's it's true and. To consider as well the practices of Judaism and the rituals 
and their their own sacrament catology yeah. kind of a thing yeah. that they use visible items. They use water, the substance yeah. water. They use oil. They, yeah. you know, so in that same context of what you're saying, it's so important to realize that the lineage of practice of Christianity and Judaism hand in hand have preceded our present practice for thousands of years. Yeah. Thousands of years. And we're talking about a Christianity that enjoyed its oneness for over a thousand years. And certainly, you know, even in respect to the East and to the, to the West, you know, the, the Catholic church all the way up to what the, the 16th century, Mm -hmm. you know, so we're talking about a lot of years Mm -hmm. of practice of what scripture reflects. Now, another one that I don't think very many, uh, non-Catholics would disagree with, although there's some who will disagree with maybe polygamy or divorce, right? Um, And that there's a sacramental nature to matrimony, right? But there certainly is. And I think the best, um, I guess, catechesis of of matrimony is 1 Corinthians, right? It's uh, St. Paul. And it's it's a little bit long. I'll I'll read some of it. But uh, it's really St. Paul giving a catechesis and teaching to Married folk. And you'll see in here a lot of the things that the church teaches about divorce and the Pauline privilege and things like that and and annulments, right? But uh, to the married, however, I give this instruction, not I, but the Lord. A wife should not be separate from her husband, and if she does separate, she must either remain single or become reconciled to her husband, and a husband should not divorce his wife. Well, that sounds pretty Catholic, right? Yeah. Sounds incredibly Catholic, but other denominations will fully accept divorces. Mm Mm-hmm. That was not the intention of Jesus Christ. That was not the intention of Paul. That was not the intention of the apostles to accept divorce. Absolutely not. To the rest, I say, not the Lord. Now, this is him, again, now putting the caveat, which is a good caveat, Yeah. that it's not the Lord saying this. This is him speaking in a more informal manner, not a direct divine command. If any brother has a wife who is an unbeliever and she is willing to go live with him, he should not divorce her. And if any woman has a husband who's an unbeliever and willing to go on living with her, she should not divorce her husband. So uh, for the unbelieving husband is made holy through the wife and the unbelieving wife is made holy through the brother. Otherwise, your children would be unclean, right? So they were talking about how the church taught, taught about illegitimate children, whereas in fact they are holy. If the unbeliever separates, however, let him separate. So again, this is that Pauline privilege of divorcing. So if two non-Catholics or non-believers get married and one of them converts, well, that person can then be remarried in the church because the other one no longer doesn't want to follow them in believing. But again, this is all a great catechism. First Corinthians 7, 10 to 17, go read it, right? But the point here is that it was the intention that there is a sacramental binding nature to marriage that I think really only the Catholic church is upholding in today's world. That would affect conversion. Yes. (laughs) So... Again, the effective element of God's working of sanctification, of the movement of the heart, of transformation is taking place. The communal nature of what marriage accomplishes is similar to what Eucharist accomplishes, similar to what confirmation accomplishes. These seven sacraments draw us into great unity that's reflective in the way that Christ loves his church, mm-hmm. you know, and, and that is such a beautiful perspective to have is that the sacraments of the church and what the scriptures are getting at and what Jesus has established for us as church 
is something effectively that's converting us and right. you know moving mm-hmm. us toward the kingdom. It's transforming us. Yeah, and I think that's why when you prepare for marriage, um, you know, in the church, that you know you you have to assess the spiritual well-being of somebody getting married too as well, Mm -hmm. you know, Mm -hmm. that, uh, you know, that they're making this decision with such, you know, understanding with such expectations, with such, you know, humility to allow God into this relationship to draw that Mm -hmm. bond and participate in the community of the church. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Entering into this marriage, are you prepared to suffer in love for your wife? Are you prepared to suffer for your husband? Are you prepared to forgive them? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Are you prepared to have the disposition of mercy toward their limitations? Because that's what God is, mm-hmm. love and mercy. Mm-hmm. And yeah, and you'll see even like the Pharisees and the scribes, they ask Jesus so many questions about marriage, right? You'll see them grill him time and time again, because I think you can read what was written on their hearts. <laughs> yeah. that they were trying to bounce, right? <laughs> They're like, ah, I Yo, Could you explain in. this in other terms? Yeah, please, I mean, Jesus, is, there, uh, is there a way, you know, maybe I could... Working you know, around this you, situation a little bit. <laughs> right. But he said, no. Yeah. Sorry, no. Because what God has put, uh, you know, bound together. And there was no a man. teaching of Jesus, too, with the, uh, I believe it was the Sanhedrin or somebody, right? Where he was... They were they were trying to trip him up. Oh, absolutely. Uh, and yeah. there's multiple things. And Jesus was very clear things. to yeah. them. In heaven, it's not so, right? You know, they, they, and, yeah. and it's like that, that whole running down of yeah. Well, my brother, yeah. my brother marries my wife, whose yeah. wife is it? Like, yeah. And and you know, that's again not to say that you know when you're in heaven, you're not going to have a special relationship with the woman that you're that's married right. to. He's just saying, guys, quit trying to trip me up. In heaven, the only <laughs> thing that matters is God. Now, if there's the accidental happiness of you continuing a special union with your wife in heaven or your husband in heaven, that's a good thing, but. That was him basically saying, guys, stay focused here. You're trying to beat me on semantics, and it won't work, right? (laughs) Now, the last sacrament, um, before we get into it, um, why don't you uh, remind everyone how they can find us and follow us, and then we'll get into this last one. Agreed, Ryan. So if you're on YouTube right now, make sure that you take a moment, click subscribe, hit the little bell next to the subscribe button so that whenever we have a show... It'll populate in your feed and you won't miss any content from the Catholic Talk Show. If you're following us on Facebook, Instagram, or Twitter, or if you're not, make sure that you hit the follow button on all those social media channels that we're present to. And most especially, this show would not be here without our patrons. So a big thank you to our patrons out there. If you want to be a financial contributor to the show and get some really cool gear, some Catholic Talk Show gear, Go to patreon.com forward slash the Catholic talk show. There you'll see every way that you could support us. And we have some really cool memorabilia and specialized content for you. So we want to say a big thank you to all of our patrons and our sponsors, Ave Maria University, as well as Exodus 90. We have a beautiful family here at the Catholic talk show and it continues to grow. So please share our content with your friends and family and on your social media pages, and we'll continue to build our community out and continue to share the beautiful aspects of our faith, especially today, sharing the beauty of the sacraments of the church. Yeah. Thank you, Padre. That was very good. Again, so I wanted to, you know, this last sacrament, it's going to be the most difficult one to talk about, but I don't think we're going to get into depth on this because we could do books and books and days and days on this, and yeah. that, that's not going to serve everyone. But this is a brief way that, you know, for anybody who's Catholic who needs to maybe refamiliarize themselves with the scriptural basis of the true presence in the Eucharist, because the belief in the true presence of the Eucharist is 
startlingly low in the church alone, let alone for someone who might be joining us who's not Catholic. But I think that the core and the obvious and logical and clear as day biblical passage for the uh, the true presence of the Eucharist is John 6. John right? chapter 6. I, I, that's what I want to say. It's like, read John chapter 6, please. It's called the Bread of Life Discourse. It's uh, Just read all of John 6. Do it. Now, a lot of people will have read that and say, no, that's not what, you know, that's not what he meant by what you Catholics are doing. But it's so clear. Amen, amen, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you will not have life within you. Whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him on the last day. This is so clear. And here's something I think that's really telling, right? They had, all the people were like, well, this was revolting to to the Jewish people at the time, you know, who had a complete aversion, um, you know, through the Mosaic law of touching bloody, unclean things. And here's this rabbi telling them to eat his body and blood. They're like, Man, this got to be a parable. What's he doing? This is like, okay, okay, where are you going with this? Because we can get to the point soon because this is gross, dude, right? And they gave him every opportunity. Jesus say, okay, well, well, let me give you a parable that explains it. Well, heaven is like, or whatever, like that he would often do. But he didn't. He doubled down, right? I mean, he doubled down and was just as clear. That, you know, you're, you're doing this. You're eating this. This is the flesh that never, you know, the bread never, never goes bad. And... Even then, and all you people who have a problem with accepting this, even then, they said it was hard to accept, right? Who could follow this teaching? This is a hard teaching to accept. Well, some of them were still, I mean, the thing that, about that, too, is he was saying this to Jewish people. Right. They were familiar with the Passover. Mm-hmm. They didn't have the wisdom to understand how this was all fitting into the Judeo heritage of Christianity. Right. Mm-hmm. I mean, so there was some context there with the blood of the lamb. Sure. There's, there's a lot of context there. See, but the, but the lamb would have been sacrificed oh, yeah. sacramentally and it's procured. Yeah, yeah. It's, a, it's a procurement of the, this ritual uh, where he is actually the, the substance of the ritual. And so, yeah, I mean, I could see how people would struggle with that, yeah. you know? For, for me, guys, I have to say that you know, the, the scriptural context of the words of institution that the priest prays over the gifts of bread and wine are for me the most telling because John chapter six is so important to realize I am the bread of life. And he, you know, those who do not eat my, you know, very, very clear. We need to have John six in our brain to realize what the Eucharist is. But then when it comes to Matthew 26, you know, Take, eat, this is my body. Drink from it, all of you, for this is my blood. The blood of the new covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. We're talking about an effective thing. Poured out for many. For what? For forgiveness. Like, this is all associated within the larger scope of what the sacraments are affecting in us in conversion of heart. This is the sacrifice. Jesus is saying, take this. This is my body. Is. This is it. Take this. This is my blood. So for me as a priest, when I extend my hands over the gifts and I'm celebrating what Jesus did, it doesn't even, it's like I cease to exist. It's like, this is happening and we're drawn into this mystery together around the altar, 
where Jesus once again is affecting this in us. Why would it be just a blind practice? Why would it be a symbol? Why would it be just an empty, what a an empty stupid thing? religion? And you and know, it would like make if it was. You know what I mean? If it, I mean, how stupid, how stupid are we to sit here without us knowing deep, deep down inside that this this God, <laughs> this Jesus, has affected us? Yeah, this has transformed my it's personal life for me. Yeah. yeah. What was the quote of Flannery O'Connor? You said. Oh, it's uh, here, the Eucharist is just a symbol to hell with to it. To hell with it. It's, That's exactly yeah, yeah. This yeah. whole this yeah. whole thing just falls. It does. It just falls. Yeah. I mean, obviously, you know, it's fallen with a lot of people that don't know and believe and understand this. Mm-hmm. And uh, I pray to God that they would understand that. But I'm I'm doing RCI. This is like my second couple that I've been working with, and I'm just like, bro, like, let's go to adoration. Like, this is it. Yeah. Right here. You know that's I mean? why I brought, I brought back adoration immediately, you yeah. know, because that's what we need the most. This of, is where you're going. Come to Jesus and be moved to that place of wow. Yeah. There's Jesus, no other here. place that you can encounter him more closely and more dearly than in the Eucharist in this no. lifetime. Mm-hmm. There Absolutely is none. And if you close. are seeking Jesus, I'm telling you, he is in the tabernacle. He is on the altar. He mm-hmm. is there waiting for you. Mm-hmm. And I think a good way to end this is that I, I think it's very telling that. John 666, which is so uh, 666, so ominous. That's the only chapter of 666 in the the Bible, too. And so John 666, as a result of this, many of his disciples returned to their former way of life and no longer accompanied him. John 666 is people rejecting the truth of Jesus Christ over the true nature of the Eucharist. And that's Mm -hmm. so powerful. So an encouragement pastorally, and I, I rarely do this on the show. I do this for my community. I try to do it every weekend. So an exercise that you can do this week, spend some time, go to the church. If you find yourself in an area of the world that church is not happening because the doors are closed and you can't spend time inside the church before the time, go to the parking lot, you know, go as close as you can to the tabernacle, bring a Bible with you, read John chapter six, read the gospel of Matthew chapter 28. Meditate on what Jesus is saying and truly like allow that to move your heart and realize in your mind, like, why would God send his son Jesus into the world to do all of this commissioning, set up all of these different practices, say these specific things if he didn't want to have an effect in your soul and change your life and not make good on it and not make good on it? I'm so grateful that the mysteries of God have been revealed and we continue to contemplate those mysteries as a community. So do that exercise. And my brothers and sisters, we love you. Keep it charitable on our feed and we'll see you next week. Mm